This is a HeadGum Podcast. Radical Dreams Pins is a socially conscious accessory brand that creates lapel pins and other accessories, including patches, buttons, keychains, necklaces, and clutch bags. Their enamel pin designs are based on social justice statements, positive messages, and prominent figures in Black culture. Some of their best-selling pins are portraits of Barack and Michelle Obama, Malcolm X, Shirley Chisholm, Huey P. Newton, and Angela Davis. They also have pins that pay tribute to old favorites, such as Dwayne Wayne, Whitley Gilbert, and Susie Carmichael from the Rugrats. Radical Dreams consistently donates a portion of their proceeds to community organizations like Black Lives Matter, the Trayvon Martin Foundation, and Black Girls Code. If you're looking to get your pin and patch game up, Radical Dreams is the place to start. Go to their website, www.radicaldreams.net, and use the code BGN to get 15% off your first order. Universal FanCon is a brand new convention coming to the Baltimore Convention Center in April of 2018. FanCon will be a round-the-clock event featuring comics, cosplay, gaming, celebrity guests, music, and more with a focus on diversity and inclusion. Get your tickets now at UniversalFanCon.com because geek is universal. Hi, this is Rachel True, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm Dee Watkins, New York Times bestselling author of The Cook-Up and The B-Side. You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Idris Elba, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. This is Riley Ritchie, a.k.a. Jacob Anderson, a.k.a. Grey Worm from Game of Thrones, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Yeah, so this is Tyhere Jetter, writer, director, and producer of How to Tell You're a Douchebag. I am very happy to have taken part on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Thanks. Hello, everyone. My name is Malik Forte. I am a professional nobody, but you might have seen my work on Nerdist.com or soon Bleacher Report. And you are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds podcast. We are the Lucas Pros, and we were just on Black Girl Nerds podcast, and it's fantastic. And listen to it every every day, every hour, because they are awesome. Hey y'all, this is LeVar Burton, Kunta, Jordy, Reading Rainbow Guy. You are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. It is the bomb diggity podcast on the interwebs, but you don't have to take my word for it. Five, six, seven, eight. Holla boys and girls, it's the BGN. Coming from the Marvel world to the DC friends. All the way from Hollywood to the PCN. She defends everyone from sleazy men. Won't apologize for spitting Shonda rhymes. The space that we make is never colonized. We're talking games and movies that actors were. Better shake your booties for black girl nerds. Better shake your booties for black girl nerds. Yeah. Better shake your booties for black girl nerds. Better shake your booties for black girl nerds. Thanks for tuning in to episode 113 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled Mika Burton, Everything Everything, and BGN's Comic Diversity Panel. Three incredible segments. 
In our first segment, we invite Mika Burton, cosplayer, gamer, streamer, all-around geek. And she does it all over at Rooster Teeth. She talks to us about her work there, and we do talk about her famous dad, the legendary LeVar Burton. That segment is hosted by yours truly and Kayla. In our second segment, Kayla does a one-on-one segment with actresses Anika Noni-Rose, Amanda Stenberg, and director Stella Magee. The new Warner Brothers film, Everything, Everything. This film is one of the few movies that a major studio is backing with key roles comprised of black women. In our third segment, we head back over to Las Vegas at Klexicon 2017. You may have remembered back in a previous episode where we talked about fandom culture. Well, in this episode, we're talking about comic book diversity and the comic book medium, how it's changing and shifting. So myself is featured along with Kayla, Joelle, and Valerie. So that's our show filled with extraordinary women doing some amazing groundbreaking things and the pop culture side to the geek side. So sit back, relax, and enjoy BGN 113, Mika Burton, Everything, Everything, and BGN's Comic Diversity Panel. Mika Burton is a cosplayer, actress, YouTuber, streamer, and staff member over at Rooster Teeth Productions, currently working as an editor and reoccurring secondary host and head of the streaming at Achievement Hunter. She's also best known for her first appearance on the Rooster Teeth game show On the Spot with John Rissinger. She's also the daughter of Star Trek actor LeVar Burton. Take a listen. Welcome to this special segment of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie. I'm your host. Tonight, we have a cosplayer, an actress, a YouTuber, a streamer, and a staff member over at Rooster Teeth. Very (laughs) excited. Very excited. And you know, her dad's kind of famous. Uh, A little bit, though. (laughs) We have none other than Mika Burton here on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Mika, thank you so much for coming back. This is your second time around. It is my second time. Thank you guys for having me. And we have our lovely co-host Kayla with us on the interview. Thanks, Kayla, for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I, I want to jump right into this. Um, Mika, you work for Rooster Teeth. And mm-hmm. for our listeners out there who may not know, because there, there's some folks out there that might not know, like a few. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> can you let them know um, who and what Rooster Teeth is all about? And tell us more about this organization. So Rooster Teeth is this crazy internet production company, I guess is the best way to describe it. They um, started off doing this little machinima show called Red vs. Blue with just a few founders. And it took off on YouTube. I think it's the record holder for the longest running machinima show that exists. And now it does animation like the anime Ruby, which is now being dubbed in Japan by some pretty cool voice actors. In the specific section where I work at The No. We are one of the top news networks on YouTube, and we report on gaming and movies and all things nerd. And then we have another subdivision called Achievement Hunter that focuses on gaming and Let's Plays and gaming content. And so it's pretty much just a big family of nerds who love the same thing who have a job on YouTube, I guess. So you basically have the best job ever, is what you're telling me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Every week we have yoga classes, and there's micro brews in the fridge, so it's pretty rad. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know, right? Nice. Nice. And I know that you're an anime geek. Like, I love seeing your Twitter. You, you express that <laughs> so much. And I myself personally... I'm anime deficient. Um, I'm oh, still no. learning. I know. We have to educate you. <laughs> so, yeah, educate me. Can you um, give me some suggestions as someone who's new or to anybody else out there that's like their first time getting into an anime? What's a good anime to watch for newbies? Well, personally, I'm biased because my first anime was Sailor Moon when I was a kid. The old school 90s anime. Like that, it came on every Monday after Oprah. I remember that vividly. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I definitely would say for like a newcomer, start with the old 90s animes. Yes, they're a little campy and sometimes a little hard to watch, but like Cowboy Bebop and Sailor Moon and stuff like that are just, it, it gives you the background on where today anime has come from and then watch what everybody's talking about you know everybody talks about yuri on ice which also i'm biased i love that anime but if you're into like some darker stuff there's the classic death note or black butler there's honestly no matter what you love there's an anime out there for you there's even like cooking anime so if you love cooking you got it (laughs) wow now that i did not know there's a cooking anime (laughs) yes there's pretty much an anime for any genre, any hobby, any anything you could possibly want, there's there's an anime about it. So if someone's like, oh, I'm just not into anime because it's all about sparkles and magical girls, it's like, dude, you clearly don't know about, enough about anime. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Cowboy Bebop. That's not the first time someone's told me to go to that as a, as a you know, for a newbie that's getting into anime. And the one anime that I have watched that I fell in love with was, in fact, Death Note. So... Um, yes it's so good it's brilliant it's brilliant so anything along those lines I'm more interested in watching oh then honestly if you go on something like Crunchyroll and you like type in I like Death Note or you know they have a recommended if you like this anime you'll like this anime you're gonna find thousands of hours of great content to watch and you really can't go wrong unless it's a critically panned anime it's probably good so it's clear you don't sleep because between hosting and <laughs> cosplaying, acting, streaming, editing, you're just, you're always going, going. So what are some things that you do for your self-care when everything just gets a little bit too hectic and crazy? That's actually a solid question because I do need more self-care in my life. <laughs> <laughs> the struggle's real. Right? I'm probably 98% coffee right now and that's not good, but I do take time like when I realize I'm stressed or like my hands are shaking and as stereotypical as it is I love booking massages for myself like I'll save up and like make sure I can go to a massage place and just take that hour to myself and just come back more zen as a person I also ice skate which is half workout and half relaxing because being on the ice is like so calming for me but my coach really wants me to train to compete in the winter season so now she's like totally on me and stressing me out but when I can go to free skate it's just nice so I think that's that's pretty much what I do to calm down is skating and massages (laughs) it's a weird comment (laughs) I think everybody could do with just booking at least I think if everyone booked at least two massages a year there would be like less problems in the world but that's just and that's like really need like it's not an often thing it's not like an every other week thing it's definitely when I realize I'm at my peak and it's time to completely come down from that stress I realize you know what no treat yourself 
book a massage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> On a bit of a more serious note, when we talk about intersectionality here at BGN within a geek space, we rarely get to hear from the perspective of queer women of color, and you openly identify as bisexual, so do I. So- awesome! <laughs> What are some ways you think we can open up those channels of communication? You know, I think that we just, it's one of those things where I find it really funny when people say something like, oh, it's not realistic for LGBT people to hang out with each other all the time. Like that's such a stereotype. And it's like, actually, I think through anime and through cosplay and through gaming, I found my people, you know, I found that corner and that niche. Like I found my current girlfriend through a cosplay photographer and she's a cosplayer too. And it's like, I feel like there just needs to be a dialogue that lets these people in hiding know that it's okay in this nerd community, in this nerd world, because we've gone through it. We get it, but we're here for you. And we can introduce you to hordes of other people who have gone through it and, and, and get it. But I know that it's so hard for, especially like nerds of color who are told that being nerdy is a white thing Mm -hmm. or gay nerds of color just that just keeps piling it on it's like you just need to be told like hey i'm here i'll help you you're not alone as cheesy as that is you're not alone and i think just that small statement can be so helpful when you go to the conventions and i'm one that goes to especially an anime convention those are Mm -hmm. the ones that i frequent the most that's where you see those niches where it's really hard to get in Right. Um, unless you know someone. And so right. <laughs> it's it's just I feel like that we're treated as a subset as a part as just being part of a whole group. So I feel like we've got a long way to go, but we've definitely made it a little bit better, especially with a lot of the the rules you're seeing and the meetups that are being made at cons. I think that's definitely making, you know, its way in for it just being all inclusive anyway. I totally agree. I think the the ch- daisy chain of like, if you know someone, they'll get you in who will get you in. Eventually that in will break and it'll just be one big group. But right now it's kind of like Club 33 at Disneyland. You know, you need to know someone to get an invitation. Yes. And I think that <laughs> if, you know, more intersectional people in this community are aware of like, oh, let me reach out and extend that invitation, the quicker this clicky nonsense can just break apart and we can all be one big nerdy community because like come on y'all we're dressing up like anime characters why is it so exclusive exactly Exactly. like we are putting on wigs and contacts and (laughs) stuffing ourselves into corsets and push-up bras and pretending to be overwatch characters (laughs) i don't know why it became this big weird thing it's like when I was I, I sound so old and I'm like back in my day when cosplay was for fun but it's like honestly like when I was first going to conventions maybe I was just ignorant of the community or just was doing it for funsies but I thought you know it's cosplay play is in the word mm-hmm. right it's fun <laughs> yeah you're you're right it's it's supposed to be fun and it, you know something that's really interesting to me is the hypocrisy of people that get criticized, people of color that get criticized by white fans in the anime cosplay community saying, oh, "Oh, well, you know, you're black. You can't be Sailor Moon. When isn't Sailor Moon a Japanese character? So like, Like, I don't understand that. (laughs) This whole deep layered, hateful nonsense of who can cosplay what and who baffles me or like I had to have a conversation with someone about you know 
darkening your skin for cosplay. And I'm like, do you see me going and putting on like 15 pounds of white foundation all over my skin to go cosplay? Like, no. And they're like, oh, well. And I'm like, exactly. So move on. It's not who can look like the character most game. Like that's for promoters and official, you know, like official cosplayers. If the whole goal is that they look like they stepped out of the video game, like Leon Cairo, who looks exactly like Gladio from Final Fantasy 15. Like, there you go. That makes sense. It would be weird if he was promoting for Final Fantasy 15 and he looked nothing like the character. But if you're going to a convention to have fun with your friends or you want to do photo shoots because you love Sailor Neptune, what's th- there's no point. It just it doesn't make sense. Just be respectful. Let people do what they like. Let people like the thing. Why can't you just let people like the thing? <laughs> <laughs> That's so big because it, it, it comes, especially within the world of cosplay, when you're playing fictional characters. And in my mind, it makes sense that you shouldn't be a certain color to play a crystal gem, but apparently you have to be a certain color to play a crystal gem. I oh found that God. out. Yeah. Oh <laughs> Okay, sounds good. Sounds great. <laughs> I'm definitely that old woman of cosplay who's just like turns off the drama filter and I'm just like, I'm just here to have a good time, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we talked about intersectionality and fandom and I and Kayla as well, we're both working with Universal FanCon, which celebrates diversity, celebrates inclusion, and it's for all fans everywhere. And I would be remiss that if I didn't mention that your dad, of course, is the legendary LeVar Burton, the blurred icon. Uh-huh. And he actually backed Universal FanCon, our Kickstarter, and we appreciate that so much. And I know I'm putting you on the spot by asking you this, but um, when you decide to come to Universal FanCon, because you're totally invited... <laughs> um, who would you like to cosplay as? And and what's the best cosplay that you've ever done? I have this Camilla from Fire Emblem cosplay that I haven't debuted yet. Yes. And I think that that's something I definitely need to bring to a con one of these days. And also my my Cindy from Final Fantasy XV is near and dear to my heart. And she travels easy because she's just a bra and short shorts. So <laughs> probably something like that. <laughs> that's awesome. So you're a huge gamer and you stream. What are some of your most anticipated games for 2017, 2018? And what are you like currently geeking out over? Cause I'm still geeking out over Overwatch and I probably will be until I'm like dead in the grave somewhere. Oh, so. 100% agree. Like Overwatch will always be my child. And I don't think I can ever stop playing. Currently Breath of the Wild still is eating away at my time. Isn't um, it beautiful? It's like. So beautiful. Like, I I played it at E3 last year, and I think my dad still has photos of it on his phone somewhere. I sobbed the entire demo. Like, it was definitely embarrassing. The the demo, like, people were probably pretty embarrassed on my behalf. But Zelda is one of those games that, like, I've loved since inception. And so having Breath of the Wild come out was, like, an event for me. So I'm still taking my time. I want 100% complete it, like 900 Korok seeds, every shrine, and then do it again on hard mode. And then Persona 5 is eating away at my life right now because it's one of those, your first run is 100 plus hours. Mm -hmm. But 
as for games that are coming out, I mean, it's probably never going to exist, but Kingdom Hearts 3. I, I, I'm I so sick of waiting. It's not even anymore. <laughs> right? Like, I'm done. I've, I've completely absolved myself that it's never going to happen. I have introduced my child to it, and he's like, when did it happen 3? And I said, 3 will never exist. 3 Don't doesn't exist. It's <laughs> like... It's a running joke with my coworkers that whenever something about Kingdom Hearts 3 is mentioned, they always are like, oh, don't tell Mika. She'll get excited and her heart will get broken again because it's not happening. It's never happening. I'm never going to see it. <laughs> I know. But anything on the Switch, I think, that's coming out because the day the Switch was announced, I, was, I knew I was going to pre-order it. I pre-ordered it. Second pre-orders went up. I take it with me everywhere. So anything that can get me more software on my favorite new console, I'm down for. I've played it and I'm waiting because I feel like once I introduce it into my house, I won't exist anymore. Jamie will no longer have help with any more BGN stuff. Um, That's why I had to stop gaming is because I get too sucked in. Like I don't play, well, in the past, I didn't play like any of the PlayStation or the Nintendo platforms. I did like a lot of PC gaming. So I would play like The Sims and just do that for hours and I oh, wouldn't yeah. eat, I wouldn't sleep. And I'm just like, yeah, I need to stop. <laughs> Nothing will get done. <laughs> That's definitely a good thing about working in such a gaming centric office is we all bring our switches to work. And when we have downtime, we'll like play Mario Kart together or discuss Breath of the Wild tips. Like, oh, did you see this cool thing I discovered in this part of the map? And it's so it doesn't take up all my time because I know that I can kind of chunk some of it out at work but oh yeah no it's definitely a problem with my social life is owning a nintendo switch (laughs) that's awesome i mean the fact that you can actually like game at work though not everybody can do that (laughs) (laughs) it's definitely such a unique work environment being able to like there's not really a dress code it's pretty chill you know you get to work with some of your closest friends and bring in your switch and there are dogs that wander around in the office and you know, everybody like makes plans for drinks. It's just such a cool chill workspace. Okay. I need you to put in a referral for me in the next time (laughs) an application opens up. (laughs) (laughs) So I mentioned universal fan con. I really want you to come. I really would love you to be there. Let me uh, check the calendar and see what's going on around that time for sure. Yeah, yeah. April 27th through the 29th next year in Baltimore. But tell our listeners what what's next for you. What you got else um, underneath your sleeves there over at Rooster Teeth? Right now, since the summer is gearing up, I have so many cons that I don't think I'm like home for consecutive <laughs> weekends through August. But I'm pretty excited. My dad and I are actually guesting at a few cons together, coincidentally. Our paths have finally crossed. Our dream has finally come true. And at Raleigh and Florida Supercon, we're going to guest, like not together together. It's not like a father-daughter thing, but I'm guesting for my cosplay and he's guesting for his everything. And (laughs) it's going to be fun. That's awesome. Yeah, it's crazy. I think when I started getting into nerd stuff and cosplay, we kind of joked like, hey, maybe one day I'll see you at a con at your booth. And now that dream is coming true. He He's over the moon when I told him that I got invited to be a guest there and that we we're going to be at a con together. So we're we're pretty excited. Is he just as geeked out about like cosplay and, and anime and gaming like you are? 
Gaming, yes. Cosplay and anime, not so much. He's definitely... <laughs> He, whenever I, you know, tell him how much a cosplay costs or how much I spent on a half-naked waifu figurine, he doesn't get it, but he's like, you know what? It's not drugs. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Like, how could you afford drugs when you buy $150 Final Fantasy figurines? And I'm like, exactly, right? Isn't that better? Exactly. That's true. That's true. It's true. <laughs> I'm definitely a, a clean nerd because... How can you how can you afford anything else when you you're can't. a nerd? You exactly. really can't. I mean, exactly. fandom is our drug, right? If you think fandom about it. Fandom is our drug. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I may have nothing in my bank account because hell yeah, I bought those limited edition Love Live figurines, but I'm happy. And that's all that matters. That's all that matters. For real. <laughs> <laughs> so where can our listeners find you on the interwebs and give us your social media handles? I am Mika Burton at Mika Burton on practically everything Instagram, Twitter. I think that's pretty much the two biggies. Oh, even Snapchat is just Mika Burton. So everything is just my name. Definitely follow in August when my family and I are going to Japan. You're going to see so much nerd stuff because I'm going to geek out for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Nice. This was great. Thank you, Mika, so much for coming on our show. Give your dad our love. Will do. And, and we hope to see the both of you guys um, in Baltimore. And if not, we'd love for you to come back again on the podcast. For sure. Maybe we'll just have to do a joint one after our joint con or something. That sounds excellent. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah. I know he'd love to do that. From Warner Brothers Pictures and MGM comes the romantic drama Everything Everything, directed by Stella Maggi and based on the best-selling book of the same name by Nicola Yoon. What if you couldn't touch anything in the outside world? Never breathe in fresh air, feel the sun warm on your face, or kiss the boy next door? Everything Everything tells the unlikely story of Maddie, a smart, curious, and imaginative 18-year-old who due to an illness cannot leave the protection of the hermetically sealed environment within her house, and Ollie, the boy next door, who won't let that stop them. In this interview, features director Stella Maggie, and features actresses Anika Noni-Rose and Amanla Stenberg. So, saw the movie. Amazing. What inspired you to come onto the project? What inspired me to come onto the project? It was a multitude of things. One of them was that when I read the story and heard Stella's ideas, I knew that it would have a whimsical quality, something that was fresher and different from what I've seen in young adult romance stories. I was also just blown away that they were even interested in me researching it further and as I learned more about the project I learned that it was based off of a book written by a black woman featuring a biracial lead and it was directed by Stella and so that was a fantastic opportunity just because of the diverse team behind it um, because roles like this don't usually exist and so when I saw that it existed I had to take it um, I knew it would be different and that was important to me. That's a great answer because, I mean, we don't get to see, like you said before, we don't get to see ourselves in these types of roles, like as a as a 
romantic lead mm-hmm. were normally cast aside as the best friend. You know, best friend and plucky. So, you know, to see someone that looks like me that takes on a role like that is amazing. I know it's going to be incredibly inspiring to a lot of younger women. Who could, and they're already really inspired by you. I mean, you're pretty out on the forefront when it comes to intersectionality. And that's something we're really big about with black owned nerds. So thank you for that. And we, you know, we've worked with you before with your comics. And so do you have any other plans for that coming? For Niobe? Yes. Of course we got plans. Uh, We're working on an issue right now. Whole new illustrator, even though we love Ashley Woods, but we're moving into the next phase of Niobe, which is called She is Death. Niobe, like me, shaves her head and becomes a bounty hunter. Uh, I love it. <laughs> maybe the bounty hunter part. Uh, actually, that is pretty much what I'm doing. Uh, yeah, so we got a whole new illustrator. We're we're working on it right now, and should be out pretty soon. Yes. Yeah. So that'll be reviewed by a bunch of us, and we'll all read it. So, Anika, with you, you don't shy away from taking on roles that you know create a lot of of talk within social media space. With this role in particular. What drew you to this character? <laughs> Again, it was it was the whimsy. <laughs> it was the whimsy. Yeah. The whimsy. Yeah. I just feel like we, as black women, are not allowed to skip through the fields with our dresses flipping behind us and butterflies <sighs> swirling around our heads. And so to see something where that is the feeling, where the feeling is that of tropical fish in an aquarium somehow yeah. I thought was really beautiful and different and yet real and true at the same time because we're dealing with really you know true things that that go on real family struggles real teenage struggles real uh, growing up struggles and where um, Maddie is growing up but so is her mother in some respects or growing in general I felt like it was really, I felt like it was a really important role to take to see a mother who uh, who appears to have everything all together but is actually a living ache and how, what conversation that may open up. But also someone who functions solely driven by, propelled by her engine is love. That is her gas, her fuel, her reason for getting up each day, for going to work, for coming home, to making sure that this home is hermetically sealed so that her love can also be such and taken care of and unmoved and untouched and unhurt. I think that's a really interesting thing, and I think that um, we often find ourselves having to do that in different ways, you know, as we move through random, casual fear of living. You take my breath away when you talk. (laughs) It comes with such weight. So seeing you in that role and and what you brought to it was very moving because it also sparks a conversation about mental health. And that is, you know, very taboo within the black community. And so opening that door to actually talk about that and how we carry the weight of loss and how we, you know, move through it through our day-to-day lives was this is going to be great going forward. Stella, for you taking on that story and mm. opening up that conversation, did you feel a responsibility to 
make sure that you told it in the best way possible with that stigma being in the Mm -hmm. Black community? I mean, I felt a responsibility to the character of Pauline so that at the end of this movie, you know, you understood her and her struggle and what she'd been dealing with and that she wasn't crazy, that this was, you know, loss and grief that she had not dealt with. It was important for me to people, for people to feel an empathy. And if you can feel an empathy for Pauline, you have to feel an empathy for, for mental illness. Mm-hmm. So this is your first big studio debut. What is that feeling like for you right now? Because I've seen, you know, Gina the Joneses. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought, I was like, who followed my family and made <laughs> this story? It's like, oh, we're just as crazy. And someone <laughs> found that out. So yeah. I, what is that feeling like for you to have this blossom? It's great. <laughs> um, it's fantastic. And, you know, it's not lost on me that usually you don't get to make this jump so quickly. But, you know, after Jean, I just thought I would follow up with another one of, you know, my scripts and, you know, something in the same vein. And this project came along and it was just right for me. And I knew it was, I knew it was for me 10 pages into the script, you know, like they had been telling me to read it. And I was like, mm-hmm, sure. You know? <laughs> I was still on the festival circuit, you know, so I was just thinking about my other films. And, and then my manager was like, did you read it? I was like, okay. I'll read it. And 10 pages in, I texted her like, I think I'm supposed to do this. <laughs> and she was like, I tried to tell you, I didn't want to amp it up, you know? And, um, and then I think I was on a plane the next week to pitch for it. So, you know, it was just, it was just the right movie for me. In the right place at the yeah. right time. Mm-hmm. And that's great. So what else are you working on? Cause I know we just finished live tweeting the quad together. <laughs> so. <laughs> I just finished a film called Assassination Nation, which is loosely based on The Crucible. That doesn't sound exciting, but it really, really is. Crucible's great. (laughs) But a lot of people aren't excited about it. They just picture teenage girls screaming. (laughs) That gets me sad. My favorite play. That's a brilliant play that's being translated to a brilliant current day situation. I'm very, very excited about that, and um, I'm working on producing some things, and, you know, I just finished the quad, so hopefully um, these things will turn out to be exactly what I want them to be. I'm going to put that in the air. That never happened. in the universe, but I'm putting it out. Um, You know, I'm excited about walking a different path without uh, letting go of what it is that I'm known to do but to do a little more uh, ranching out myself. That's amazing. Thank you guys so much for your time. It's been great. In our final segment, we're over at Cluxicon 2017. We have a diversity in comics panel featuring Black Girl Nerds contributors Kayla, Valerie, and Joelle. And also on the panel is Nyela from Geeks Out. So we talk about how the industry has been helpful for people of color in comics and not so helpful. So I hope you enjoy our diversity panel over at Clexicon. It was a lot of fun. Enjoy. Welcome to the diversity and comics panel. I'm super excited to panel with this amazing group of ladies. Um, I'm Kayla. I work as a social media curator for Black Girl Nerds, and I'm going to let everyone introduce themselves. Um, and give you a little bit of background and then we'll get started. So, can we start? Yeah. 
Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Jamie Bradnax. I'm the managing editor and founder of BlackGirlNerds.com. And it's an online community that comprises of a website, a podcast, YouTube channel, a very large and <laughs> interesting social media <laughs> following. We do live tweets and um, all types of fun things on Twitter. Um, and I also go to mini cons across the country and talk at panels like this one. And um, we have meetups as well. Uh, so yeah, I've been doing that for about five years now. Hi guys, I am tweeting. Um, <laughs> and my name is Joe Monique and I work for Black Girl Nerds alongside Jamie and some of these other ladies up here. I do movie reviews and comic reviews and sometimes just general commentary on black community and the queer community. I also work at AfterBuzz TV, where I do after shows. If you guys watch Talking Dead, it's essentially that with a bunch of shows. Uh, my favorite one is Arkham Black. How you doing? Uh, my name is Valerie Complex. I am a writer. I write for Black Girl Nerds in addition to uh, other websites. I've written for The Nerdist, IGN, Geek um, <coughs> Sundry. Um, my own website will be coming back. It's called Ebony Complexion. I'm completely anime trash, and, um, <laughs> and the website talks about, um, we talk about uh, cosplay and anime from a uh, diverse um, POC perspective, um, and that's always how I try to keep my writing, and I'm also on ground today. Hello. Oh, Ian, yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, my name is Naela. I am here uh, representing uh, Geeks Out, and if you're unfamiliar, um, Geeks Out is a nonprofit, um, and our aims are to basically um, increase uh, safe spaces um, in the geek world and uh, geek cons and so forth for queer um, geeks. We do a lot of sponsoring of events uh, like this. Um, again, we have a big social media presence. We have a uh, website where we do all kinds of uh, writing on pretty much any and everything that's uh, queer, queer related and um, ready to geek them. Um, I'm also a, a contributing writer for um, Geeks Out. Awesome. Okay. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Um, so, what I want to know is what were your entry comics? Um, what were you first reading? And did you notice a lack of diversity instantly, or did that come with adding more comments to your collection? Uh, I actually was super late bloomer. Also, it was a show called The Comic Book Exchange on Bookstore Online, where we talked about comics. I am a newbie. I started reading comics in 2009 when I was in college, and my roommate was like, I can't believe you don't read comics. You watch all the movies and all the TV shows. My introduction to the comics world was Batman the Animated Series as a kid, and I was like, this is awesome. Where are people that look like me? Um, and I kind of never got that. And then as I started collecting comics, I started with Batman and the DC Universe, and it became pretty clear that, like, like aside from Storm, we're kind of like on the peripheral. I found Rocket much later in life, and I was like, okay, well, this is my girl, so I'm still waiting for her to get a solo series and be amazing and kill it. Um, for me, it was the X-Men. Uh, the X-Men animated series on Fox is what did me in. <laughs> um, so much so, they actually had a comic book called X-Men Adventures. You guys remember that? Uh, I, I bought those comics, and obviously, seeing Storm was everything to me. So she was definitely my gateway into comic books. Um, but yeah, it grew from there. I was an Archie reader. 
I mean, I think a lot of us that started in comics got into Archie because it used to be like at the grocery store, the checkout counter, you get the Archie book. Um, but yeah, just seeing uh, Archie comics, X-Men, uh, and then I got into other books like Excalibur, which was like a, a team that had some of the X-Men members in it based in the UK. And I started reading comics when I was nine years old. Um, and I've always kind of been a fan of those, uh, of that subculture. My mom used to drop my brother and I off of at the comic book store. And she'd just go shopping for hours and we would just be there just reading her comic books and we'd take some home. And um, I also played with the comic book trading cards that they had and, and I would trade cards with friends. So yeah, I've been a long time reader and fan of the books since, since I was a kid. Um, X-Men was another gateway for me, um, but I used to, you know, be heavy into watching shows, and I used to collect, like, trading cards, I had holograms, and I'm still bitter that my mother put them out, um, <laughs> but really I didn't start reading comics until I was in college. My friend handed me a DVD and was like, here, read this. And I was like, great, I can read this and not do homework, this is awesome. And um, the first comic that I officially ever read was V for Vendetta, which is like a graphic novel, I guess. And, um, you know, it was about revolution and everything, but, you know, you still didn't see people that looked like me or that people looked like a lot of you. Um, but it wasn't until that I got, that I got affiliated with the Black Girl Nerds community that I really started to notice that there was a lack of, um, women of color and just lack of marginalized communities in the comic book in the comic book world and then those that existed the way they were represented was just crappy and they deserve better and so that's why I do some panels like this to advocate for better representation. Um, I think uh, like a lot of people my first um, foray into comic books was the, the Archie comics. Because um, as a kid, I had no idea that um, that there was any kind of community, um, you know, fandom was, and or uh, what comic book stores were. Uh, they said they were in grocery stores; they were easy to get, and, and my mother would buy them for me when I asked. Um, and yet, Archie. I mean, now you know, Archie's you know, like much better and like pretty cool. <laughs> but at least when I was reading it as a kid, um, let's say like early '90s, whatever, it was definitely like. Uh, Possibly like the whitest, uh, you know, comic. Right here was really, really white. <laughs> um, and, um, and so and I was so used to, um, I don't think I noticed because I was so used to, you know, most of the, the media I consumed and watched was majority white. So it was really hard for me to, uh, you know, see the difference. Um, and then I got into um, X Men and. Um, I'm trying to, I think I got into the cartoon first, like X-Men cartoon, um, and also Batman, the Batman cartoon, and I was hard, hardcore into um, Batman Beyond. Um, the cartoon was like two seasons, and it was like, you know, the worst, that was being canceled. Uh, I was like, can't worry about Batman Beyond fanfiction now. Fanfiction <laughs> 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 never dies. And so when I got into Marvel, um, I had no guide, so I was just really picking up whatever with no sense of like continuity or story, uh, which led to some really like weird things. Like, um, like I read Ultimate X Men, 
I'm sorry, not me, I mean ultimate, um, like the ultimates, um, ultimate adventures, mm -hmm. which I would not recommend as anyone's gateway <laughs> to adventures. <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, all these people are tools. Um, <laughs> I hate, like, you know, uh, you know, Captain America, and now I'm complete Captain America trash, I have a Captain America tattoo. And I was like, I can't remember there was a time I thought Captain America was, like, not cool and, like, mean. <laughs> um, but yeah, so now I'm, you know, much more, you know, aware, and I actually know, like, purposely, uh, you know, seek out um, like writers I like and artists and so forth um, and specific characters. But yeah, like comics today are much, it's much easier to do that than it was in back in the day. So when talking about diversity within the comic industry, um, there seems to be a misunderstanding with where diversity should start. Um, if it should be started in the writer's room or with um, anyone writing in diverse characters. Um, so, so where do you think the diversity should start? Should it start on paper with someone just taking on that role of writing a diverse character? Or should it start with actually hiring diverse writers? Um, for me, it's really important that diversity start behind. Like, with writers and artists, and also I think incredibly importantly and often left out of the conversation is the editors. It's a lot of times the editors going out to find the talent and putting them together and curating the stories. Um, and they're oftentimes guiding the tone of the story as well. And I think that if we can have more diverse people, not just involved in the creation, but in the hiring of diverse people, that it gets us a lot further. Um, I'm always excited, like Jason Aaron does a lot of uh, diverse storytelling. He did um, Scouts, which is like this incredible graphic novel, um, which takes place entirely on an Indian reservation. Um, and I just feel like, even though he is a white guy, like his research was impeccable, and he really cared about the story, and I think that if we're going to have white creators telling stories from other, or anybody telling stories from a community they're not a part of, do your research first. And I think that if you can get a combination of that, of people telling stories outside of themselves that are well-researched editors and people in hiring positions going out and finding really good stories and then bringing creators who are already working, that we can have a really diverse comics field in like no time at all. It seems very simple. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it definitely starts with editors and certainly having writers and artists on a lot of these books. Uh, the fact that Storm is finally being written by a black woman for the first time ever <laughs> is, is very much a, a very interesting thing. I mean, Yona Harvey, I'm, I'm very excited for her. She's going to be doing the Black Panther and Crew book. Um, and the fact that Storm is being written by a black woman for the first time is uh, just crazy to me. But I see that Marvel is making strides, and that's excellent. World of Wakanda, if you have not read that already, get your life. <laughs> get your life. Um, I mean, black queer women in a book that is so fully fleshed out, and it's a complex relationship, and it's not a trope. Uh, it's just so beautifully well done, and being written by a black queer writer. Um, that's good. I'm glad that Marvel's making those strides, but there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, it, it's kind of funny. There was a tweet that someone shared, and it was a panel from the Miles Morales book where him and a group of folks was looking at uh, some sort of Twitter feed, and they were celebrating, you know, getting some sort of recognition. And Miles Morales says, we're lit. <laughs> And I thought that was kind of funny because it's not we're lit, it's it's lit. Uh, 
you know, Miles is not wasted with his friends right now in that context. <laughs> <laughs> so like things like that, um, I think maybe we need to have some, some folks in the room of color. Uh, to correct on that. And then also on a more serious note, Brian Michael Bendis, who, you know, is the creator of Miles Morales, uh, there was a very kind of colorblind moment where uh, Miles Morales says that he doesn't want to be known as the black Spider-Man. And I just think that right now, um, things like that is a little bit tone deaf because a lot of us want to be recognized uh, for our blackness, for our queerness. And I, I think that, uh, it's okay to feel empowered by your identity and, and not to be colorblind, because honestly, colorblindness can be a very dangerous thing to wander into. Um, but yes, having editors, having writers, having artists, when there's so many, and so many that are incredibly talented to have a voice and to have a platform to be able to share their work, it's, it's definitely needed. And um, even though the big two gets a lot of flack, I think that one of the things that we do um, here at BGN is we hold their feet to the fire when it comes to the big two, but we also support those independent creators that are already doing the work. Organizations like Women in Comics that have black female writers and artists and editors that are already putting out books. We're making sure that their work gets you know, noted and amplified on social media and on the website and having them as guests on the podcasts. So we do that as well as say, hey, Marvel, you need to have some more black writers in the room. You need to have more black artists in the room and same with DC. Um, so yes, it's important all the way around. Um, I'm curious from the audience, uh, how many of you guys can name more than five writers of color um, that are associated with comics. If you can do so, you know, hold up your your hand and tell me how many you got on, on both fingers. Um, I'll give it like 10 seconds. The lack of urgent response is inherently the problem because um, either it's you know, the, these comic book houses aren't promoting certain writers, or people, you know, pe people are not going to know what they don't know. So, um, like you were saying, I encourage you to go out and research, even if they're not as big to research independent writers. Um, if they can, if you find a story that interests you um, by someone who sort of reflects who you are, I encourage you to go out and sort of look at their work because, you know, hopefully. By you know, sometime in the future, we can all call out more than two uh, writers of color, or you know, marginalized writers or queer writers um, who are on some of our favorite characters in, in comic books. Yeah. In addition, in addition to echoing um, what all the rest of the panel said about um, obviously increasing, um, you know, more uh, people of color, people of other. Um, non-identified um, um, you know, communities, non-identified but like representative communities in the writer's room and promotion. But I think it also starts a lot with the, uh, with the fans and the fandom um, because there's still such um, a very specific idea of like what a comic book fan looks like or who they are. Um, which is still, you know, the old stereotype of, you know, like the young know, comic book guy from, you know, The Simpsons. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know, like some, you know, like thirty-year-old, you know, like you know, straight white, you know, cis guy, and um, they think they're, you know, catering to that 
you know, to the audience. No matter how much data you know we have, that like, hey, 50% you know of buyers or you know, or video game you know players, etc., are you know women and people of color and so forth, um, that still gets lost. And those voices, like you know, the straight cis white men, are still such like the loudest voice in the room. When it comes to comics, like I said, I spend like a lot of time um, because I hate myself <laughs> on uh, <laughs> on comic book resources. Self hate, self hate. And that form is so dominated by like the saltiest like uh, <laughs> like like press like white guys ever. And anytime there's ever any like discussion about um, you know diversity. Like, oh, you know, hey, like, you know, um, like, America Chavez is getting her own book, or, or there's, you know, a new Iron Man, you know, immediately all they're screaming, like, uh, that, you know, it's pandering, and it's, yeah, like, social justice warriors, and uh, why can't, you know, comics, you know, not be, like, political, which is a super, like, tone death, like, who knew here? Like, comics won't be political. But, um, and so a lot of, you know, these writers and the people in Urban Marvel, you know, I, I imagine have to just be completely tone deaf, whatever, not to know what their base is. So for a long time, the burden, which is not fair, but the burden falls on people from marginalized communities. You'd be like, hey, we're here, you know, can we get some kind of good representation and so forth. I think of when, um, um, when you know, Jughead was confirmed as like canonically like asexual, now in the open, the response to that was so huge, and so many people were so surprised, like, what? Like, we didn't think that'd be such a big deal. And I was like, well, <laughs> there's a whole, you know, not so secret um, population of asexual people out there who are dying for representation, you know, of themselves. They're there, you just have, if you dug a little deeper or ask, you find, hey, women want to be represented, and, you know, and black people, and people of color, people, you know, um, um, other, you know, religions that aren't, you know, Christianity, and trans people, etc. Um, and there is a danger that because the writers' rooms are so male, white, cis, and so forth, you end up getting those people trying to do diversity. And sometimes it's like really hit or miss. <laughs> so sometimes they, you know, I like like Brian Michael Bendis. Um, I know some people like here like love hate, you know, <laughs> Brian Michael Bendis. Um, <laughs> I couldn't have, you know, some love for, you know, like a follow on Tumblr and stuff. Um, but for him, I think mean, he's trying, and I feel like his effort comes from the fact that he has, like, a multicultural blended family. Um, where, you know, like, two of his children are black. Um, so he has, like, a vested interest, but you shouldn't have to have a vested interest, you know, like that to do um, diversity. So it's really hit or miss. So I would say that, you know, from the fandom, from the ground up, we just need to, like, yell and scream and talk of our dollars and so forth until, especially the big, you know, Marvel, DC, and so forth, have to pay attention, like, okay, we'll hire, you know, a trans writer or you know, a Latina or, like, an Asian woman, you know, that kind of thing. And you guys have kind of touched on that with answering the last question, but um, what are the issues with cisgender and non-POC people writing for characters that are POC and characters that um, fall on the LGBTQIA spectrum? And if they do write these characters, can it be done right? Um, it yeah, it can absolutely be done right. Um, and I think that a lot of times when people from other communities come to talk about a new community, they often want to start with the struggle, which I think tends to be the biggest issue. They want to come at it with like a 
like I want to save this character <laughs> through their story. Like I show the real grit of what this community has to go through without understanding fully what that pain, not only what that pain is, but the fact that that's not the thing that makes that community whole. Like the fact that gay people had to, had to be closeted for so long is not what made them a community. You know, it's certainly an aspect, it's certainly um, something that you want to explore, but it is not the core of the community in the same way that black, the core of black people is not the history of slavery or gang violence or any of the other things that our community has struggled with throughout history. We are very diverse, we have a lot of different opinions, and it's important that when you're showing someone from a community that you don't know anything, talk to someone within, and not just one person, like multiple people within the community, get a sense of like what that community is and how they rally together. And like inside jokes, I think are the things that for me, when I'm reading a comic by someone outside of the community, that's when I'm like, oh, okay, they did their work. Like it's these small inside jokes, these things that you can only know if you were part of the community that makes the story rich and full. And I think that that's what's really important when you're writing these stories. I think that there's um, a hesitation for doing that kind of research. I went to the uh, Black uh, Comics, uh, Comics Con in New York City, and they were talking to the author of Kindred, Octavia Butler's Kindred, which is now a graphic novel, and the writer is a white, straight male of the book, and someone stood up and asked the question, so yeah, did you, uh, where did you get your, um, your information from, did you talk to black women about struggles and slavery? Did you do your research? And he mentioned his initial apprehension for going for that information. Um, he didn't really get into it and explain why, but I can see why there would be an apprehension there. Um, I think that they're, I think, especially men, I think they're afraid of uh, coming off as not knowing what they should know, mm -hmm. um, because you know men don't know it all. You know, so I'm, I'm just, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, so I was like, sort of asking for directions. Like, I know where I'm going. I need to. And then they, you know, end up being asked questions that they can't answer. Um, and I think it, the same thing sort of works in, in comics. They sort of just go on, maybe they watch BET or Housewives of Atlanta. That's where they get their inspiration from. Um, What's this but, one or, or Yeah, or like, oh, yeah. Yeah, like David Ayer and Suicide Squad. Or you have situations where it can be done right, where you look at uh, Barry Jenkins and Moonlight. He's a straight male who was able to direct a fantastic film that got the point across and everybody understood exactly what was going on. So it can be done right, but the difference is Barry went to the source. He went to the writer of the source material and actually got information on how to make this, how to make Moonlight as proper a representation as possible. And these people are not doing that. They need to swallow their pride and start doing this if they think they're going to continue to dominate the community. Or write yeah. something else. Because, or write something else. Right. Because there are many who, you know, when you look at the, the Twitter feeds of Rob Liefeld and... Oh, the, God. Uh, <laughs> you would know his name. <laughs> the other guy, what's his name? He drew the um, spider woman booty. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. You know, they're like, you know, why, you know, why me? And, you know, uh, I, don't think they, I don't think they want their careers to end because it's like a really good, you know, there's like a good old boys club where they create a lot of cheesecake bullshit. And, um, you know, they're used to that, but they, they don't, they don't like the idea that the atmosphere is changing and their careers are on the line. 
time. Yeah. And but they refuse to get with the program. Good. Nobody wants to see that ugly. I'm just going to jump in just in case, you know, Twitter goes off on you that the Kindred novel is also co-authored by John Jennings, who's a black, black man. So um, maybe he's getting insight from John Jennings. Um, But I I think also um, like Kelly Sue DeConnick is a great example of a white writer who's writing black women very well in Bitch Planet. Um, and I also commend Kelly Sue for bringing on black feminists um, to have a voice in the back matter of her books with these brilliant essays that have been written. Um, so yes, I, she's done a fantastic job. Kind of meandering off into a different direction from your question, I, I do want to just talk about like the work that I'm doing. I actually launched a new podcast called Misty Night's Uninformed Afro. <laughs> and um, it's about black women superheroes. And I think what I've found in the feedback from people so far that have been listening to the podcast is it's very refreshing for them to hear about these stories of all of these black female characters that have been written by white men, um, cisgendered white men, um, that for the first time they're hearing a black woman's perspective on these characters. And they're learning more about these women in details in ways that they haven't been able to capture in comics. And these are women that have been written about for you know 40 years plus. We did an episode about Storm. We did, obviously, an episode about our namesake, Misty Knight. And uh, the fact that they're hearing these stories about their origin, about their character development, and they're just like, I've been reading comics for years, but I didn't realize this um, about a certain character. Is um, just it's it's a really cool thing to get this kind of feedback. So I really hope that for a lot of us that say, hey, we're not seeing ourselves represented, um, that we kind of take ownership and go, you know what, we're going to create our own, and we're going to analyze and scrutinize. Uh, characters that we've loved that have may not been written so well in the past and dissect their stories and present their stories in a way um, that hasn't been quite done before. And I I even think Marvel themselves are kind of like looking at what I'm doing because Marvel tweeted out a story about Misty Knight all of a sudden after the podcast launched. And uh, when Luke Cage came out, I didn't hear anything about Misty Knight from Marvel. so it's good. I'm glad folks are paying attention. I, I'm glad that light is being shed and uh, that hopefully Misty will get her own movie. Misty will get her own book. Um, her own spinoff Netflix series. Yes, a Daughters of the Dragon will happen. Yes. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I just wanted to add that um, that taking ownership is uh, incredibly important. Yeah, I think it's also uh, important that a creator has to like act like uh, authentically and genuinely want to get it right. Mm. Um, they, you know, there are projects behind it, you know, and they want to put out, you know, a good book that people in the community they're um, portraying actually go, okay, like that's legit. And I'm thinking of um, G. Willow Wilson. Um, you know, she's the writer of. Um, of Ms. Marvel. Marvel. <laughs> and you know, as, you know, Ms. Marvel title character is a uh, teenage, first-gen, Pakistani, um, Muslim girl. And G. Willow Wilson, she is Muslim, but she's um, American, a white woman. Um, so you know, no immigrant experience, you know, not Pakistani, and so forth. 
And I think the biggest um, compliment to her in that book is that uh, when I um, showed my, um, you know, my Desi and my um, Bengali you know, and Muslim friends, they were like, oh my god, <laughs> they're like, this is so funny. And like I said, there was all these inside jokes. And, um, and there's Arabic interspersed, um, at least from, from what I've known, you know, from my um, you know, um, Muslim, you know, um, South Asian you know, community friends that I've been friends with you know, for decades, I could recognize the authenticity and um, the realness of it, especially from someone who is within the religion of Islam, that comes across very strongly. Um, and like I said, it's just um, she is so important to her that you know Muslims and you know, teenage girls and uh, East Asians and all these communities are um, represented well. And because you know she knew how big you know the first you know it's going to be one of the first um, you know Muslim you know heroes and you know, especially in like this climate, there's a lot riding on you know Kamala Khan, and it was a huge um, you know, success. But you can tell that her heart and soul is there and that it's really, really important to her to, um, um, to get it right. And so, because I think you can tell when it's like just like kind of copy and pasted. I was going to say, I'm glad you bring up that the intention is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Just, what is the, oh my gosh, you said volume two of a Batman story, like, oh, Batman King, old, he's crotchy, he's fighting. So you have the girl robbing y'all? Thank you. The Dark Knight Returns volume two, the opening text messages with the black kids, where they were, is just to see the the definition of like a white man's interpretation of like black street slang, and it was so offensive and difficult to read and shout. I'm like, I don't even know what they're saying to one another. Like, why did you do this? Frank Miller, I don't know what you <laughs> <laughs> We saw. <laughs> you have a question? Yeah, isn't Brie Larson playing as Marvel in like upcoming movies? Captain Marvel, Captain yeah. Um, can you talk about the first time you saw yourself in a comic and have you actually seen yourself fully represented? I, I can speak to a couple of like, iter- I feel still don't feel like to this day that I've seen like, I mentioned the other day that Susie Carmichael was the first time I saw myself on television and I was like, oh, this girl is like me, I totally get it. And I'm not sure I've had that full experience yet. Uh, I'm mostly a DC reader, Bumblebee comes pretty close she, and Rocket. I like Rocket because she's mouthy. Um, which I was like, I see you, girl. I totally understand. Um, and also, she relies heavily on a mentor. I've got, like, I'm like JD from Scrubs. I just always want somebody to be like guiding and steering me a little bit, helping me out. And she's um, really uh, in tune with her mentor, and she gets to build really cool tech, which I have no skill for, but always really wanted. So Rocket's pretty dope. Um, I haven't seen one yet either. Uh, I would say if I was younger when Moon Girl and the Devil Dinosaur came out, then yes, I would completely identify with Lunella Lafayette. Um, but she's nine and I'm 36, so that's <laughs> <laughs> not happening. Um, and even Riri Williams and the Invincible Iron Man, these fantastic ladies who are super smart and I'm not nearly as smart as them, but. Um, I definitely had my book head in the books in school, and I was like the bookworm, and you know, very socially awkward and inept, uh, much like Lunella is with her classmates. So I, I definitely see a lot of my younger self in those women. Um, but I would love to see like a black girl nerd book with <laughs> with women that are you know sort of my age, like millennials and older. Like a girlfriend superhero comic book. Yeah, yes. yeah, something like that. So <laughs> that would be fantastic. I mean, I, I definitely first saw myself in Storm just 
for like identity, for like optics, you know, yes. just seeing a brown girl uh, running was, stuff. yeah, running oh. stuff and in cartoons. And again, like that was, she's the reason why I got into comics. And that's why that's so important to see yourself in comics. Cause I don't think I would have gotten into them had I not seen Aurora Monroe. So yeah. I can, I can say um, for myself, uh, no, um, but for in cases like Moon Girl, my niece is 10 years old, loves her. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to get her to cosplay Moon Girl, she's kind of just like her. She actually just like her too. Because um, your kids are like, you know, not kidding. <laughs> but um, one of the, I, I'm going to say for myself, no, but one of the stories that I, remember recently that I thought was really cool was um, a story by Mark Millar called um, Mouse Per Hour. And um, since I grew up poor and around a lot of drug addicts, um, Mouse Per Hour pretty much is, um, there's a drug that's out in the street that gives people the powers of speed. Meaning they can run from, you know, from downtown New York to Harlem in under a minute. And you know, if you see people on the they run across they, the globe and then you're you know, tired of them, like that. Yeah, you it out. But, I mean, if you've seen how some people act on drugs, you would think they could, you know, pick up a back truck and throw it. And I, you know, and I know, it, you know, I'm trying to make it sound funny, but it's a pretty bleak um, picture of what it's like to be someone on drugs in a poor neighborhood and trying to find a way out, and here it is, they have the power of speed, so now they can run from the cops, and now they can steal things, and that's that's just more of like a, a story um, that I could relate to as opposed to like a character, because I think stories are also important um, when it comes to relatability as well. Um, because if you put, you know, you put like a, if you put like a black character in a certain atmosphere, and it doesn't make sense, then but I'm able to connect to it. So the story along with the characters has to be there. It has to all click. So. Um, yeah, I think for me, like um, Storm was the first um, character. Again, it was just like aesthetics, <laughs> just you know, black women. Um, I'm like, I mean, and I love Storm. She's one of my like top five, you know, favorite, you know, um, ethnic characters. I'm nothing like Storm. <laughs> we have nothing in common. <laughs> We're not goddesses, no. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe Beyonce. I'm not that serene. Like the leadership quality. Um, so yeah, when I think of all my identities, like no, I can't think of a character, you know, that fits. Um, yeah, I feel like where I would fit, like if they created like, you know, a black, you know, queer, you know, uh, super geeky character and then like put her on uh, the Young Avengers team. <laughs> um, Cause I'm Young Avengers trash. <laughs> um, yeah, like you know, the second run, um, which I love because the pop culture is straight on. Like they did their you know homework, even though know, the, the writers stuff were like the grown ass men, you know. <laughs> but they just that book it had such a teenage accurate like sensibility. It was social uh, media. But that's a team I would fit into. I would be like a Young Avenger. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I don't see very many like black women like me and. Um, in much of any pop culture. I mean, especially growing up, like the struggle was so real. <laughs> so, um, you know, being like, you know, a black girl, I grew up in like South Central Los Angeles, and I wasn't into any of the things really that like the other like black kids around me were. <laughs> um, 
and I was like famously like ostracized for it, or you know, say I was trying to be white, you know, that sort of thing. So if I had actually been able to see like a geeky bookworm, <laughs> you know, um, who's you know into you know like uh, you know pop music and that kind of thing, that would have been like everything to me because I felt like completely like you know alone until I was actually you know, much older adult, and I'm like. Okay, like there are people like me, like when I discovered, you know, black girl nerds, I was like, ah. <laughs> I was like, my people did it's actually called black girl nerds. <laughs> um, I found my place. Um, but that was like a couple years ago, so, and yeah, and I'm, you know, 36 too, so for the first, you know, 30 years of my life, that would have been awesome sauce. I have a good question. Do you guys, for me, because I, I was trying to think, like, as we were sitting here talking, you guys were telling, like, what you do relate to, it occurred to me that maybe we're not seeing ourselves because black women are often portrayed, especially in comics, as like endlessly strong. Like when we talk about, so like Storm is boss, like this is no shade of Storm, but she's like calm, but she's also like a dope fighter, but she's also like a leader, but she's also like a great like one-on-one -on -one teacher. She's almost nothing Storm can't do. And while that's really cool, it's not at all realistic. And the more I think like, even like the girls I'm really excited to see pop up in comics like Rocket, like there doesn't seem to be a limit to what she's able to do and I feel like maybe we don't get to see like you know soft or very sensitive or even you know more like in physical appearance more butch slash masculine like women and they exist and they're out there and I think it's kind of it it is endlessly frustrating to know hundreds of people like, literally hundreds of people hundreds of black women specifically just with giant ranges of personalities and life decisions and makeups and only have one portrayed to us over and over and over again. And I'm really glad you mentioned um, Dinosaur because she, she's with her little Afro puffs. She gives me all of the life. I really hope that, you know, I don't know if we have any like super younger viewers in here, but that character really touches. Can you like talk to me about it? Because I really want to know like how seeing, you know, somebody who is sensitive, who is socially awkward, who wears black skin and how that kind of touches you. Do you guys feel like there's a character out there that encompasses who you are specifically? Anybody? Raise your hand. And she's pointing to it right here. America Chavez. My God. My God. Totally. I see some people like those some spirit fingers. What does that mean? Shout them out. Shout them out. Just this year, Alice Danvers. Yes. Right on. But even then, she still is really together. It's it's just now that she's that she's in a relationship with a woman that we see some um, awkwardness in her character that I didn't see the first season. But, but like, I'm 37 too, and it's her story at 37 that looks the most like my life right now. Mm -hmm. Not that I, I can point to a couple people like Joe from Facts of Life, and again, these are comic books. It's not comic books. It's yeah. But that that seemed a little like me when I was, but never.
hell yes. So like that was for like Dr. James, I'm very Oh, what I think is interesting about the Alex Danvers story, did you guys see the story that went viral about the comic book shop girl? Yeah. 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 Guys, that story like, had me in tears for maybe a full day. <laughs> like, yeah. The idea that, uh, what I like about our community is now that we've branched out, not just comic books, not just video games, not just movies, but now TV, um, and of course I full-heartedly include fan fiction in this because us getting to tell our stories to one another I think is a vital part of what keeps us together. Uh, I just think it's kind of amazing how now we can bring in people into our community through outlets that they maybe never would have been exposed to otherwise. And I think Supergirl is doing that in just leaps and bounds. It's amazing. Alex's story has been really touching for me too. This person who's just starting to date is just like, okay, so it's cool that I'm like uncomfortable talking about things and I'm not quite sure how to react or what to say ever. And I can still be like loved and loved back. Um, so it's really important. Thank you guys for sharing. I really appreciate it. So really fast, there, there's been a lot of race bending and gender bending um, in comics and it tends to piss people off, so who cares? <laughs> um, <laughs> so is, is there a character where you think this has worked well for, or is there one that isn't working, like, that you feel it just shouldn't be done? Kayla, didn't you have a thought on this earlier? We were kind of talking about it at the table. <laughs> I, I wasn't necessarily thrilled with the way Thor um, gender bent was written with her being weakened by cancer spoiler. from yeah spoiler sorry um, <laughs> it, was, it, it kind of was like for me like why does that have to be her story why it does bother me um because it's you know that's how men work um why couldn't that just be like everyone else like like kate is just hawkeye um, and America is just America. But no, let's take this um, that has been always centered around a male um, ego. Um, I'm not a huge sort of fan, you can't tell of him by himself. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's like the Superman of Marvel. Like, I can do anything. And it's like, I like to see flawed people, um, which is probably why I always identified with Loki. Um, over him, so I, I just have issues with that gentleman more than anything. Um, everything else, um, other than Riri being written um, from, I know how you feel about that, Jamie. Oh, uh, with Riri. Um, <laughs> I think the thing with Bendis, um, you know, I get the fact you mentioned that you know his kids are. are are black and, and, and that's cool. But I, I think that when you write characters, especially with a 15-year-old black girl, you've got to just be very careful. One of the things that bothers me with Riri's story is the fact that um, she stems from a very tragic origin with, I guess, spoiler alert, with her parents, um, her stepfather being killed, and then it happens twice. So, and then she's from Chicago, and Chicago has to be riddled with violence in Ugh. order for it to be an authentic story. But there are parts of Chicago that aren't. I actually- I'm a Chicago native, and I can tell you wholeheartedly okay. that it's not, 
Yeah. But if there are pockets, pockets of extreme violence, but for the most yeah. part, it's a city like It's a city, it's so, so it perpetuates, it perpetuates a stereotype. And um, I, I did a recording on this on the podcast coming up, and Stephanie, my co-host, she's from Chicago, and she talked about that exactly, that there are pockets that are safe, and that it's not this, you know, place just filled with, with violence. So, you know, that that's the part of Riri's story that I just don't like, is that she's got to be relegated to this really tragic uh, superhero story, which, quite frankly, like the orphan hero story, how many times have we seen that done? Too many. <laughs> yeah, the same thing with Miles, and Miles coming from a single parent home. I'm like, well, not all Latins come from a single parent home, but okay. Miles didn't come from a single parent home. His, right? Do you yeah. your mom know that? Is it yeah. yeah. that? Go for it. We've been spoiling all day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <I'm glad laughs> Yeah. Okay. And there's this whole thing, but now that he's in the regular Marvel universe, it's back to two parents. Oh, okay. Like, so the changing back and forth, and yeah. like the turmoil with that, I didn't necessarily care for that either. Any of you guys have a gender and character that you think is problematic for any reason in particular, or you know, kind of like the issues expressed up here? What you think? Can everybody hear her? No, no. <laughs> I don't have a problem with like gender bending and race bending at all, but I do think that we should have our own original characters for us. Yes. Yeah, my problem with most gender bending race bending stories is that like, oh, it's temporary. So like don't worry, fanboys. Like we're just giving them a taste, something they can enjoy for now, and then they can get off our backs about it later. Yep. Which is, I'm talking about Sam Wilson. I'm talking about almost all, all the time. They're just like, don't worry, like Thor will go back, like it's not permanent, I don't need you to stress, it's it's cool. Um, and that's kind of why I, I gravitated so hard to Miles Morales. Like I, I haven't found a woman that represents me, but man, if Miles isn't like proving my like younger self like just fully like just a kid who's like I, I want to do really well in school and I want to really impress my parents and I also you know want to try to save the world um it's just like a naive very childish thing to think but it's it's also beautiful and kind of amazing and while I think there's definitely been steps off the path for his story for just getting to read him like it fills me with so much joy to see Miles Morales in the costume but you also gotta there are original characters out there, but you gotta put your money where your mouth is. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Finger snaps. I love going into the into the, the forums and they're like, create original characters, and I'm like, yeah. So let's list off how many you're supporting, and then it's like dead silence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like you know you can't tell me what to do and then be hypocritical. Put your money where your mouth is. There's you know, um, Moon Girl was I guess was being threatened with cancellation because it wasn't selling or something like that. And then it turns around, Black Panther is like number one for April 2016. So people, they know where you're going, they know how to get it. They just need to support it and shut up and stop complaining. Right. And actually pay the money to get the comics so that they can be popular and they, they can stick around and they need, and people need to be more vocal. Hey, you know, maybe you could give us two Thors since they give us a whole bunch of events
No. Don't be shy, guys. <laughs> we know by Yo. Uh, from a three-meter standpoint, when you're building uh, a world and you want to make it a first world and everything, and you're doing you know, cultures and things like that, in your opinions, do you think that it would be better to make a world that uh, that mirrors our world or one that you just kind of make it your own and you just I think it really depends on the story that you're trying to tell. For example, um, if you guys have attended any of the YA uh, panels here, you've probably heard them talk about the fact that we've got these readers now, making sure that when you're representing a culture that it's accurate. We've seen a lot of talk on Twitter with people writing books where they're basically just picking up a culture and giving it a new name and saying like, look at this thing I created. I think if you're gonna go really hard into fantasy, I think you should make a new culture. Like don't pick up a culture and then be like, oh, I stole like little things from it and now it's new. It's not new, you just ripped it off and you didn't give credit to the culture that you know created all these beautiful things, all these stories, um, all these traditions. We call that Matt Damon. So. Yes, it's not good, it's not a good look. <laughs> but I think that if you're telling a story here and now in the present or even sometimes in the past, like, um, God, what is that show? Time. Timeless. I love what Timeless is doing. Timeless gets to literally change the past. It's got their black character. We got so nervous. It's like, you can send this black man into the past every week. Like, that's dangerous. Don't do that. But they lean full into it. Like, they know that it's dangerous for him. They have a plan in case things go bad. He's got to do things that he wouldn't necessarily want to do. But he also gets to learn history, like the black, uh, uh, the Lone Ranger episode, which is just. Oh, thrilling and amazing and wonderful to watch. So I really think it depends on what kind of story you're trying to tell. I would say that the most important thing as a creator is don't, just don't rip off another culture. Don't don't give it a new name. Don't try to spice it up and don't talk about it if you don't know about it. Anybody else have any questions? Um, where comics Ooh, good questions. Octopus Pie is amazing. It's wonderfully diverse and it's Oh, so good, guys. And it's so many years. There's so much content for Octopus Pie. Definitely check that out. Uh, really old comic, but still available for free. Written by someone famous whose name escapes me right now. Archangel, which is like a future, and it's teens, and it's dystopian. Um, and some of the best art you'll see on web. This is when my comics were just getting started. I think he read it for like three years. Uh, wonderful stuff. Uh, oh, my goodness. What was a lesbian comic? Something strap-ons, but I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> She works, she works at a sex shop, and it's amazing. I'll try to tweet it out if I remember it later. Um, I mentioned World of Wakanda. Get your life. Um, <laughs> Jim the Holograms is amazing. Ooh, the question Sophie Campbell's doing is awesome. Oh, oh, web comics. Oh, um, Agents of the Realm yeah. uh, by Mildred Lewis is really good. Um, who's the comic writer that does pom pom something? Uh, yeah. Oh gosh! Maybe yeah, bad today. Google, Google will know. Yeah, right? it's right here, um, and it's in web comic form, but it's also in print. Um, Half-Centric by Jules Smith is really good. Um, I don't. I read a lot of like manga online or a lot of like manga stuff and manhwa. Um, one that I can recommend is called uh, Love Love Fighting by. Uh, Sharita uh, Morris, I think her name is, and it's about a, um, a half, she's half black and half Korean, and she lives in Korea, and she has a Korean boyfriend, and, you know, it, it's really interesting, so I would check that out on the web, and um, you can actually, um, if you follow me on Twitter at, uh, 
at Valerie Complex. Just one word, I'll tweet out some suggestions um, if you're interested. Or you can stop by the, uh, the Black Girl Nerds booth for booth more 110 for more <laughs> recommendations if you're interested. Um, we'll be there, or you can stop over at Geeks Out. Um, <laughs> which booth number again? Uh, 206. 206, and find out recommendations there. All right, well, ladies, thank you so much for doing this panel. Um, and thank you guys for stopping by. This is great. Thank you. Thank you. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. Various episodes are edited by Jamie Broadnax, M.R. Daniel, and John Bauer. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spreaker, and Spotify. That was a HeadGum Podcast. 